pride is toxic. Pride kills relationships. Pride uh, causes people to lose touch with reality. And uh, I'm sure you've experienced this amongst people, an unhealthy level of pride or arrogance in someone is um, quite repulsive to people. Uh, it's, it's off-putting. And uh, the main character, one of the main characters um, under God himself, the main character in this story, I suppose, Belshazzar, has a, a toxic level of pride and arrogance that has caused him to just lose sight with reality um, that is, uh, leads him into utter foolishness at times. And there are lessons that we will learn today from the pride and folly of Belshazzar as we look at that and then apply it to our context. So I'm going to read through Daniel chapter 5. And I I just uh, encourage you to read along. And then we will break down a few things in this passage. So Daniel chapter 5 verses uh, 1 to 31. This is God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and the lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and all languages and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is God's word. A bit of context for us from last week, finishing Daniel chapter 4. We've just skipped almost 30 years from the end of the events in chapter 4 to now the events in chapter 5. So we've gone from the fall of Nebuchadnezzar now to Belshazzar, who is probably at least two generations removed from Nebuchadnezzar. So one of the things that comes up inevitably in Daniel chapter 5 and this idea of Belshazzar is that the text calls Belshazzar the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar is his father. Um, but it's likely that Belshazzar was at least two generations removed, possibly the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and this isn't an issue at all from the text. It's quite common, um, particularly in Hebrew thinking to refer to a father for any uh, ancestor really we know this where the jews constantly refer to abraham as our father and they're um, hundreds of generations removed uh, so it's quite a, a standard thing uh, for belshazzar here to re to be referred to as the son of nebuchadnezzar or nebuchadnezzar to his father because it's saying he's from the same line uh, he is an ancestor um, even aside from that, if we go with character traits alone, we can see a lot of similarities in Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. He certainly follows in the same prideful footsteps. He gets caught in the same situations as his father or ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we saw last week Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dramatic fall 
deep into the valley of humiliation. Uh, he is dehumanized. He is like a beast for a time until he's restored. Uh, here in Daniel chapter 5, we have a similar fall, a deep fall into the deep valley of humiliation. But for Belshazzar, this is a fall uh, to the point of no return. Nebuchadnezzar was restored in an amazing way. Belshazzar uh, dies. It's quite ironic in, the, in this passage. You know, he gets the um, uh, interpretation from Daniel, which is basically saying, hey, you're going to die. And Belshazzar says, wonderful, throw a, a uh, robe on him and this guy's going to be the third ruler and I'm going to die. Uh, it's, it's quite a dramatic end here, sort of a sudden end, uh, just of this death following his pride and folly. Uh, Belshazzar becomes like the embodiment of a particular pride that strays into utter foolishness because he is completely obstinate at the point of death, when death is at the door. I mean, in this situation here in Daniel chapter 5, what's happening, happening is the Babylonian empire is not really as strong as it once was and the Medo-Persian empire is uh, conquering a lot of their territory and they are literally right at the door of Babylon and it's not like uh, the Medo-Persian empire has like stealth bombers now they're sort of creeping in no, no they would have known exactly what was going on and what's what's Belshazzar doing at this point as the Medo-Persian empire is about to take over he's throwing a crazy party he's just partying um, in his palace, he's showing off and he's about to die. This is a foolish man, but it would be uh, just as foolish of us not to learn the lessons of pride and folly in our own lives and in our own context. So we're going to look at how Belshazzar demonstrates his pride and folly in three particular ways and then look at how uh, perhaps there's the same dangers in our culture, in our context of the same pride and folly. So the first way that Belshazzar demonstrates his pride and folly is that he exalts himself. He is a self-exalting man. Look at the introduction here in just the first four verses. It's this scene of a wonderful party. He holds a great feast for a thousand uh, and he drinks wine in front of all his guests. He's boasting uh, in front of them. This, this picture here in the first four verses of this party is meant to be one of ostentatious opulence, of lavishness, of just um, self-indulgence. It's meant to be this uh, lavish picture of a self-indulgent ruler who uh, is boasting of himself and, and uh, who is utterly foolish. He not only shows off in front of his guests uh, by drinking wine in, in front of them, but he actually goes a step further than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar uh, brought the vessels from Israel's temple into Babylon, but by all accounts, it seems like they were just victory trophies there. Belshazzar takes them out and he starts drinking from them. He wants all of his guests to start drinking from them. Uh, it's, it's meant to show uh, the arrogant self-exaltation of this man. He brings in the sacred vessels of the God of heaven and earth, and then they begin praising the false gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron and stone, uh, whilst they are desecrating the sacred. 
It's a slap in the face to the God of Israel. It's like saying, I'm going to bring all of your uh, sacred vessels in, but I'm going to praise all of these other gods. I'm just going to desecrate uh, this God. It's basically him trying to say, I'm better than the God of Israel. This is no God. He is a self-exalting man, self-exalting even over the one true God. Secondly, Belshazzar seeks divine intervention from the common. This is actually something that uh, Tobias, I believe, drew out in in chapter two while we were away. But I listened back and he spoke of uh, seeking uh, the divine from the counterfeit, I think was the way he described it, which I thought was helpful. I think uh, Belshazzar here shows his foolishness by seeking divine intervention from the common. Um, After the fingers of the human hand appear, as we see from verse five, They write on the wall. Uh, Belshazzar's prideful partying is immediately changed. Imagine the change of atmosphere there. Uh, This prideful, self-exalting man who has just been boasting in front of all his party guests. If you read, he is now discolored. He is extremely alarmed and he's physically ill. In fact, uh, the phrase for his limbs gave way, is actually uh, the phrase of his, his loins loosened. Now, you can imagine what that's referring to, his loins loosened. He's that terrified that he's actually um, effectively soiling himself. Like he's really um, in a state of shock. Uh, his knees are buckling. It's meant to show the foolishness of this prideful man. And here we see Belshazzar finds himself in the exact same situation as Nebuchadnezzar uh, multiple times where something unexplainable happens and he desperately wants to find out. And so what does Belshazzar do? He does the exact same thing as Nebuchadnezzar did. He tries to seek divine intervention from the common. He goes to all of the wise men of Babylon, just these common people uh, to try and seek divine intervention. Uh, He turns to the mortal and counterfeit. Uh, But as we've already seen through Daniel, that never happens. The the common, the mortal, simply cannot understand things that only the the divine can reveal. Even Daniel himself, his response to Nebuchadnezzar when he brings him in to say, basically, well, I can't do anything, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. We don't seek the divine intervention from the common, yet this is what Belshazzar does. Thirdly, so uh, firstly, he, he exalts himself. Secondly, he seeks divine intervention from the common. Thirdly, he honors the unworthy and dishonors the worthy. Uh, if we skip ahead to verse 23, look at uh, Daniel's summary to Belshazzar particularly the last half of verse 23. He says, You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. He gives honour to that which is utterly unworthy of honour, to these false gods of gold and silver and bronze and all sorts of uh, creative things. And he dishonours that which is worthy of honor. Even uh, just jump back to verse 13. Look at the way that Belshazzar actually addresses Daniel when he comes in after the, the queen or probably the queen's uh, mother enters in and says, 
um, hey, there's this guy, remember, like he was like the main guy for Nebuchadnezzar. He basically solved everything and now he is chief over everyone. Remember this guy and Belshazzar kind of says, oh, okay, well, let's try him out. And then he refers to Daniel. He says, oh, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Now, at this point, Daniel has been serving in Babylon for decades, a long time. I mean, he's like almost 80. He's probably into his 80s now. He's been very prominent in the Babylonian empire. Belshazzar sees him and says, oh, you're one of those Judean exiles, aren't you? Yeah, can you solve my problem? It's, it's a picture of pride and folly. Uh, so here Daniel then steps in, and from verse 18, he begins to remind Belshazzar of what happened to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So he says, oh, king, remember the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Uh, and then he goes on to say, but when his heart, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was dehumanized. He was brought utterly low. Daniel's saying to Belshazzar, he was humiliated and you haven't learned a single thing. You haven't remembered the story of his humiliation. And then Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation, this beautiful doxological uh, words of praise at the end to say, hey, I now serve the most high God. Uh, he's the one who rules over everything. Yet Belshazzar hasn't learned anything. Daniel says you, from verse 22, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. But you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. In fact, Daniel is actually more specific with Belshazzar uh, in his arrogance than Nebuchadnezzar. He says to, that Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up in verse 20. But Belshazzar, well, Daniel says, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've exalted yourself specifically in the face of the Lord of heaven. You brought the sacred vessels in so that you could desecrate them. And then you praise the gods, these false gods, in an utterly foolish way against the Lord of heaven. Like, just think about that statement there. Daniel, Daniel saying, you praise these gods, these false gods whom you've made, and they don't see, hear, or know anything. And then the one who holds your breath, who knows all of your ways, you're, you're completely ignoring. Daniel's basically saying, Belshazzar, you are a moron. You're a fool. What a moron to bring these false gods in and then fail to give honor to the God who has your breath in his hands. Now, it's easy for us to probably distance ourselves from Belshazzar and his pride and folly and think, well, you know, at least I'm not like that. Uh, and we can sort of feel a bit more comfortable. But if we just take the time to humble ourselves and we look at our context and we think about the pride and folly of our day, which we are susceptible to, I think there's some helpful warnings in this passage. If we think about self-exaltation, that's how Belshazzar showed his pride and folly. He boasts of his greatness. He does it in front of masses of people. Now, where do we see that today? 
firstly, we of course see this in, in the celebrity culture of our day, where celebrities boast of their greatness in front of the masses. People flock to their feet for anyone who holds status. But even now, over the last few decades, average Joes can certainly boast of their greatness to the masses through various social media platforms. We can post a picture of ourselves, a filtered picture to show our beauty, and then we can even post an unfiltered, uh, unfiltered picture to show how real and genuine we are. And we sort of po post it out, uh, let the masses like, even if the masses is like 10 or 12 people, we still uh, you know, flaunt ourselves before them. Um, we can show our virtue. I mean, this is actually becoming a thing on, on social media now where you like pay for someone's meal and conveniently you're taking a video of it and then you post it out to the people so that they can see how generous you are. You can boast of your uh, generosity to the masses by posting these wonderful videos of you shouting someone lunch. Uh, it's, it's quite foolish and um, that's hopefully uh, for us really obvious to see the, the, the folly and the pride in that. Uh, but when we think more critically, particularly about professing followers of Jesus, those of us who would identify with Christ, one particular danger for us where we can easily exalt ourselves, where we can easily put ourselves above God and above other things, is if we subscribe to this cultural mantra of autonomy. Autonomy is, is like freedom. Autonomy is literally self-law. Autonomy is where you are a law unto yourself. And society really wants autonomy. We want to be free, uninhibited. And anything external that's trying to sort of threaten our ability to do as we please is simply, um, th well, threatening our freedom. Uh, they are actually threatening who we are. So we want autonomy. We want autonomy because we want to govern ourselves. And we see this because in society, we see most people, uh, the law is basically their feelings and their experience. And whatever happens there is right. And they want to be able to govern their dreams and their reality. And this is the water that we swim in. So whether we like it or not, we are going to be influenced by this. Uh, we live in this culture of autonomy where we really want to follow our dreams and desires and we want to govern our reality. So we want to redefine certain things, gender, uh, marriage, these sorts of things, because we really just want to govern our own reality. Now, if we just take one particular application of that as a danger for us, if we think about the church, the local church, uh, do we see this? in the local church? Do we see people's, uh, how people approach the local church and whether or not there is this sort of uh, weird autonomous desire within them? Uh, I think it's, been in, it's increasingly common now, uh, this idea of church shopping, to sort of find a church that's right for your needs. Um, and really one's commitment to the local church is purely conditional upon their comfort and their needs whether a community is right for them. So not only uh, do we shop around for churches, but we uh, you know, spend a lot of time finding the church that's right for us because our commitment is conditional upon our wants, our needs, and our comfort levels. 
And this results in many people attending a church, but still living these self-exalting lives. They're exalting their needs and their desires above anything else, above what God's word says, and certainly in opposition to the scriptural mandate to consider others' needs as more important than yourself. That's fundamental to being the church. So it results in people ending up being a part of a church, but making major decisions like moving house, having lengthy absences, organizing events, without even the thought of how it might affect the brothers and sisters that we belong to. Now, I'm not saying that this is like a sort of blood in, blood out community. Like you come in the door, you're never leaving. Like you can, you know, you have a life that you will do, but to not even have the thought of a major decision and then think, now, how is this going to affect the brothers and sisters that I belong to? my family? How is this going to affect these people that I love and care for and that scripture tells me that I need to consider them as more important than myself? If that is not there, then perhaps there is a self-exalting flavor about your life. We have to see the church as the body which we belong to, as the place where we are we, we necessarily consider others as more important than ourselves. It's the total opposite of an autonomous culture that we live in, where really we govern our own reality. No, Scripture governs our reality, and Scripture tells us to think of others as more important than ourselves, to not exalt ourselves, to actually take a lower posture and desire to exalt others. A self-exalting uh, spirit of our day is something we need to be very wary of. Secondly, seeking divine intervention from the common. So remember in the moment of crisis, what does Belshazzar do? He follows the same example as Nebuchadnezzar. He seeks divine intervention from the common, from the counterfeit. And of course, it doesn't work. Now, we clearly see this all over society today. People turning to quick fix remedies for deep internal issues that only the divine can solve. There's heaps of applications of that but if we just focus on one we know that the author of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity into the hearts of men so there is this supernatural longing within the hearts of all men for eternity God has designed us in that way and yet in our day now we have all of the technology and resources to temporarily numb that desire within us. It's not a, a surprise that um, belief in God is um, far higher and greater in countries where they don't have the resources to go on a holiday somewhere or, you know, uh, to act, they're actually praying for their daily bread quite literally. There is a desire there. Whereas we live in this society now where we can basically, we don't have to pray for our daily bread, we just go down to Woolworths and get it. There's no dependence. Likewise, there's no dependence on the supernatural. We just have all of the resources at hand to numb these deep internal desires for the divine that nothing, no cheap counterfeit or nothing common in this world can actually satisfy, regardless of the amount of holidays we go on, regardless of the amount of money we spend, the sort of experiences we have, nothing can satisfy the eternal longing that man has other than reconciliation with the Father through the Son by the Spirit, other than considering Christ as the absolute treasure of life. That is the only thing that satisfies our desires. 
And yet we have all of these resources to temporarily satisfy them, to even numb us to our spiritual longing. So if we then look at the local church again, and we see where does this uh, play itself out, seeking divine intervention from the common, do we, do we try and create fellowship? Do we try and create fellowship by good coffee, structured social times, uh, mood, music, and lighting, segregating groups based on common interests to sort of make sure you're around like-minded people? Do we try and create this divine fellowship by all of these common strategies? Or do we believe that fellowship is actually a spiritual reality that exists within all of those who trust in Jesus? And we experience that as we as broken, messy people just come and desire to worship Christ. And everything else flows out of that. We don't have to manufacture fellowship. Actually, it's, we can't. It's a spiritual reality that exists within those who are following Christ. Or if we think about church growth, do we employ pragmatic marketing strategies to grow the church based on common business models? Or do we seek to be faithful to Christ above all else and rightly leave anything like that into the hands of God where it solely belongs. He alone gives the increase. He will do that however he pleases. We do not seek the divine from the common. Thirdly, honouring the unworthy and dishonouring the worthy. Belshazzar foolishly offers praise to that which is utterly unworthy, of praise, he mocks and dishonors the one who is worthy of all praise. He takes created things and he offers them the praise that only a creator is worthy of. Now, this is clearly not isolated to the 6th century BC in Babylon. It doesn't take long for us to see that all throughout our society. Now, if we uh, go about 2,000 years back and then 600 years after the context of Daniel 5 and we find ourselves in uh, Rome or in the Roman Empire, Paul addresses this in Romans 1 in the reading that Ben read out. After Paul in Romans 1 talks about how God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, as in it is through trusting in Jesus that we see the righteousness of God and then we continue to live by faith in Christ. Paul then goes on to say, in a similar way, uh, something else is being revealed in society, and that is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is also being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness because people suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. So people suppressing truth is actually revealing God's wrath against them. And Paul explains how this happens. He says, in verses 21 and 22 of Romans 1. Although they knew God, that is these people uh, who were turning away from God, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul summarizes in verse 24. He says, because of this foolishness, God delivers them over to their foolish desires because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, the story of Belshazzar 
very easily, like a glove fits into that, doesn't it? He praises these created things. He exchanges the truth of God for a lie. He dishonors the God over heaven. He exchanges praise toward the creator who holds his breath in his hands in order to worship these created things. We see the exact same thing happening today. People exchange the truth for a lie. People offer their allegiance and devotion If we just think about that simply in terms of how much time and effort we give to something, people give a lot of time and effort to all sorts of things. I literally just read a story the other week about a woman in North Queensland who spent like $30,000 following the North Queensland Cowboys around this year. And the article, it was just showing like her, the article was basically almost praising her for her commitment to this team. And she said it in a jovial way when they asked, that's a lot of money. And she said, Ha ha, it's only the kids' inheritance. Spending huge amounts of money following this team of sports stars who will never know her and who really just sort of feign this interest in her when she probably comes to give autographs. And it's sad. It's a sad reality. And it's not isolated to her. This is all of us. We all give this devotion to things that are just not worthy. They're utterly unworthy of that level of devotion. And notice... Notice that man can never actually do away with the God-given desire to worship or serve. We simply exchange our worship to something dishonorable. That's what we do. We can't do away with our desire to serve or worship. That's inbuilt within us. We just exchange it. We see this in parental instincts, whether maternal or paternal, people uh, who desire Um, to um, have children or at least express this paternal desire toward children. We, We see this in society, this desire for nurture and how it's been exchanged because everyone has this desire for nurture towards something. Now, God gives us that desire to be fruitful and multiply and to, to raise children primarily amongst other things. But our society, because we are quite selfish, we have to admit that, children are really, really difficult. (laughs) Children are a sanctifying thing. And most people will have the sense to realize, well, I don't really want that. I don't want to take years out of my career. I don't want to kind of have to clean up nappies and these sorts of things. So we still have the desire for nurture. But what do we see happening in society now? People just direct that toward mostly animals like dogs and cats, and we elevate them. I mean, the term fur baby didn't come out of nowhere. It's because we give a huge level of devotion toward these children, this nurturing instinct that we have. Children become a bit of an obstacle. We can't quelch it, so we just give it to a dog. People literally push dogs around in prams. Like this is, this is what happens. We just exchange the truth of God for a lie or the desire for the union of marriage or monogamy. It's not like that has decreased. People still want partnerships. People still want marriage or at least this union. And we exchange the truth of God ordaining that that would be between a man and a woman. And we exchange it for a lie of whether it be same sex or even heterosexual couples never getting married, living lives that don't reflect the the union of marriage that should reflect Christ and the church. And we just take this inbuilt desire that we have and we exchange it for a lie. So we direct it towards something unworthy of that. 
We take the truth of maleness and femaleness in our society and we exchange it for a lie where we try to redefine what a male is or what a female is. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and we honour that which is unworthy and dishonour that which is worthy. It's a, it's a shameful thing. As a bit of a side point, if we think about applying this to evangelism. We were out in Tuggeranong yesterday and um, handing out some tracts and striking up conversations. If we think about exchanging the truth of God for a lie in terms of evangelism and our task of actually proclaiming Christ, we never exchange God's truth for foolishness, even if what we present as truth seems utterly foolish to those who we are presenting it to. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And in our cultural moment, it seems utterly foolish to proclaim one true God over all. It seems foolish to a lot of people. It seems foolish to proclaim a Christ who is totally satisfying, who absolutely ravishes your heart to a generation of people who can get that through all of these temporary superficial things. It seems foolish. And so we don't exchange it to try and appeal to their carnal interests and then like slip Jesus in under the table once we get them in. We present Christ crucified. We don't subscribe to worldly wisdom. We use wisdom in terms of contextualizing, but that centers on Christ crucified. We don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. And God is pleased through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. It brings him glory when we present a wonderful Christ that doesn't seem all that wonderful to a natural mind. And then all of a sudden, someone who is born again says, that is what I want. That's everything that I want. And that glorifies God. Now, these are the lessons from those who walk in pride and folly. Uh, if we draw to a close and look finally at this writing on the wall, uh, the writing on the wall in verse 25 is mene, mene, tekel, parson. Now, there's a whole other sermon. If I um, wanted to demonstrate uh, my own pride in all of the research that I've done in showing all of the wordplay in this, um, it seems fitting to not do that. Uh, Daniel clearly gives the interpretation here. So from verse 26, he says, mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. Uh, you probably have a footnote there. All of these, um, the interpretation is based on the words. So he's taking uh, usually what is the noun uh, form and then just applying it in verbs. So to say mene, it's like he's, it's as if the, the writing was actually number, number. So mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed. So it'd be like seeing weigh and then what you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In simple terms, what Daniel is saying to Belshazzar, this is the interpretation, Belshazzar. Time is up. You have fallen short. You're about to die, basically. Your kingdom is gone. That's what he's saying. Time is up. Your days are numbered. You've fallen short. You've been weighed and you've been found wanting. And you are cut off, divided. Your kingdom is divided. So the writing on the wall becomes this judgment for Belshazzar. Right after this, he dies. Could have been just a matter of hours. 
and he actually dies, the Medo-Persians take over. So that's why we get the common phrase, the writing is on the wall, to sort of display this idea of impending doom is coming. Like, that's it. Time is up. The writing is on the wall for them, as in that their destruction has come. Now, how might we understand the writing on the wall for our present context? It's interesting that Jesus uses actually similar language in one of his encounters with uh, the people of Israel of that day, where in Luke 11, Jesus casts out a demon and the people come to him and say, hey, Jesus, looks like you're casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Jesus says, that's impossible. How can I cast out demons if I'm serving a demon? A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. So Jesus says, that's not the case. But then he says, if by the finger of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying there, if I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, then it's actually a sign that the kingdom of God is breaking in. This kingdom that everyone must turn to or it will crush is breaking in because what uh, follows Jesus' message of the kingdom, his message is repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn now. He's saying time is up. The kingdom is breaking in. If I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, it's evidence the kingdom of God is breaking in. The time is now to turn. The time of repentance is now. Do not delay any longer. The writing is on the wall. So to us, to those who are following Jesus, but have lingering pride, I certainly felt convicted of this uh, this week as I was uh, looking up a, a sermon and I just like, I actually had the intention of just uh, listening in order to see everything that was wrong with it. Like just a wicked heart, a really prideful, self-exalting heart. And thankfully in God's province, I was reading this and just very convicted of just the, the, the pride in that and actually approaching God's word, regardless of how terrible the, the preacher is, it's God's word. And we use discernment, but to come over that and be waiting for what is wrong with it was just evidence of a really prideful heart. So if, so if you've actually felt anything like that, do not delay any longer the path of repentance to humility. Do not delay any longer turning away from pride to humility. The writer of Hebrews actually gives us a very stern warning where he says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The writing is very clearly on the wall. For those who don't know Jesus, but for those who know Jesus, that God hates pride and destruction will follow. God hates pride. So we turn in humility and we seek the forgiveness that is only found in Christ. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the way, the path of repentance is always the bended knee before the body and blood of Christ. The bended knee before the cross of Christ, which shows us 
that the way of restoration isn't for ourselves to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but actually to bow before the cross and to remember that as his arms were extended, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What a wonderful, wonderful truth that the blood of Christ, regardless of the amount of pride, regardless of the amount of sin in someone, should they turn to Jesus, the blood of Christ is absolutely sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us pure, to make us spotless, so that the Father looks upon us and says, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased, you are perfect in my eyes because you are in Christ. 